our Navy friend took us on base to, to go to this bar once. And uh, so it was really fun to like see some of this stuff on screen. Did you play Great Balls of Fire on the piano? No, I did not. Oh. Because uh, I don't know how to play piano and nobody knows that song. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you live in San Diego, California. And I am here with Cassidy Robinson, who is recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. Yes, I made an impulse buy while I was at work today. And by at work, I mean at home looking at the Facebook Marketplace. I mean, I do that all the time. You'd think I was paid to shop from home. For some people, that is a job. They're like... Well, that's not technically mine. They're like influencers or something, but there are people <laughs> who get paid to shop. Oh, no. Influencers don't pay for any of that stuff. No, yeah. The, most of that stuff they get for free. Yeah. And they just get paid to promote it. So whenever, mm-hmm. you know, let's let's have that happen. I purchased on the secondary market... A Nintendo Switch. Really? With, yes, with three games. I, I've i been having this like weird nostalgia for when I had the Nintendo 64 and okay. the games that I used to play on it, most of which were Pokemon related. Um, sure, sure. I mean, there's some good Pokemon games on Switch. As I've learned... But, you know, originally I was just looking for, I was like, oh, you know, surely I'll just find a Nintendo 64 and all these games I had super easy. No, that is not the case. No, it's actually probably harder than finding a Switch. Yes, that is is where the story was going. I've, I've been looking for both Sega Genesis stuff and for uh, Nintendo 64. And now that they're like vintage and collector's items and just a cartridge of Pokemon Stadium, which was the worst Pokemon game for that system, was $100 by itself. Whatever. The point is, couldn't find it. Been looking for months and months. Every time I'd see a deal pop up, someone would come in zero hour and buy it out from under me. So finally, I found somebody in town who was selling almost a brand new Switch and three games. I have a Switch. I didn't even know you had a Switch. Yeah. I thought you only had an Xbox. Uh, I did for a while, but I got the Switch pretty soon after it came out, because I, um, I wanted to play uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild, and uh, I was pretty disappointed by it, actually. Um, mm. I'm like the only person in the world who thinks that game's kind of overrated. And, yeah, I have a few games. Okay. We should play games. We can play games. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they have, the like, a uh, link-up kind of system now. I have uh, I have the Smash Brothers. Oh, the new one? Mm-hmm. That yeah, was yeah, one I'll of the games that came that. with it. I also have a Star Wars Lego game and, and a Mario Kart game. 
Oh no. yeah, I have a uh, Mario Kart too. Well, fuck it. Let's. This will be a gaming podcast now. We're so old and like behind on anything cool gaming. You know how I am. I'm very thrifty, so I wouldn't have pulled the trigger on any of this except for I got all of the above for under three hundred dollars. So yeah, I thought that was good. pretty good. I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. And I did a little research to make sure that I was doing all right. I still do want to get the new uh, Pokemon Legends. Well, they're they're about to release a new one, but just get like Soul Silver or something. I I can't remember what the one is for the Switch. Sword and Shield were their two big flagship titles. Yeah, yeah. They even have uh, Pokemon Snap again. I know that was a, especially one of the games I wanted to play with with the sixty four because that game was very relaxing. <laughs> And so hopefully the new one is as well. Today on the podcast, we are going to be covering the smash hit summer blockbuster Top Gun Maverick. And for... You started that like like you were being sarcastic, but it, no. it actually has been a pretty big hit. Yeah, it's been very, very, very well received. Two weekends in a row. Uh, it it uh, beat out everybody else. Um... And for the streaming homework, you assigned us uh, the movie Copland from 1997, starring Sylvester Stallone. Before we get to that, we're going to go back and look at some movie news that we haven't covered. So let me pull up the stories, get some snap reactions from you. Okay. This one was announced a while ago, but I, we forgot to cover it last time we did movie news. Blake Lively to make her feature directorial debut with an Edgar Wright scripted adaptation of Brian Lee O'Malley's graphic novel, Seconds. Um, so O'Malley did uh, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. I'm sure you know that. Did you ever read Seconds? I haven't. Uh, it's it's kind of been on my like peripheral list for a while. I've heard good things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. See what Blake Lively can do. Yeah, you know, you don't see her in movies so much anymore. I don't know if she's been, you know, maybe she had like a kid or something, or or maybe she's in some TV show I'm not watching, which is usually the case when I wonder where somebody went. I think she's just living on that Ryan Reynolds Green Lantern money. money. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're married now, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, apparently this will be produced by Edgar Wright and Mark Platt. Um, so uh, Yeah, I mean, the the Edgar Wright-Branley-O'Malley combination is exciting. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think Blake Lively is talented. I think she just, you know, she got cast in not great roles for a long time. None of her worst roles are indicative of what she's capable of as a director. So, you know, that's yeah. yet to be seen. I've never seen anything she's done. It'll be interesting. Are they going to go more for that kind of Edgar Wright, super fast editing, you know, pop art sort of style that Scott Pilgrim has done in? Or I don't know. I've never read seconds. I think it's kind of more slice of lifey. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I really have no frame of reference for it. Yeah, I knew when that book was kind of floating around my friend group, and I never got a, a chance with it, but, um, yeah, 
I was hoping you would uh, have more knowledge of that than I did. No, that one's been, um, like I said, I'm, I'm very aware of it. I just hasn't crossed my path yet. Right. I'm still behind on all the comics I want to read. It's ridiculous. <laughs> okay. Next story. There was a picture that leaked. Uh, Todd Phillips posted on Instagram the first confirmation that the sequel to the 2019 Joker movie is moving forward. Uh, I believe the picture he leaked was of Joaquin Phoenix um, reading a script. And uh, the title will be Joker Folly Adieu. Uh, I think it's like Folly Adieu or something. I think it's like, I think it translates to like the second folly or something like that. Sure. It's so fucking pretentious. (laughs) It makes me want to barf. If they're like leaning into that as a joke, then... Maybe, but I so am not interested in this. Just fucking... I liked the first one all right. It does not seem like the type of movie that I think needs a sequel, but it was good enough that I'll, you know, I'll wait until, like, a trailer and stuff comes out, but based solely on this title, I'm like, fucking no. That's, I mean, that's a lot of opinions for a title. Um, I have much yeah, less... I mean, the first movie was already, like, floating... Uh, flirting with, like, this overly pretentious bullshit. So, I don't know. I just, like I said, if it's, It took itself a little bit more bit. seriously. I don't know if I would call it pretentious. I mean, it was just a crime movie that happened to be about the Joker, kind of. Um, a little pretentious. I guess. Whatever. I thought it was good. I wasn't, like blown away by it uh but i also wasn't um you know mad at it or scandalized by it which was you know the big talking piece about that movie when it came out um i don't know i'm kind of interested to see where his take goes because it is different from the dc take like the you know the typical batman story arthur fleck you know is not jack napier or any of the other joker characters we've seen before so it has kind of more freedom to be what it wants to be also because the last one was an origin story and they more or less just kind of went beat for beat on like taxi driver and the king of comedy i'll be interested to see where they like what they can do now, now that he is the character, you know, is he going to get in, become a crime boss? Is it going to be more of like a organized crime movie or is it going to be, you know, the further, uh, downward spiral of his psyche? I don't, I mean, I don't know how much further he can really go down that. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just, I'm also, are there going to be, is there going to be more Batman ish stuff? Cause he was a kid in the first one. Yeah, like, you know, and then we're getting into, like, the Gotham series territory, and I'm just, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not interested in, like, revisiting this world. Like you said, it's, you know, the first one is riffing so heavily on, you know, movies that are notorious for having sequels. Uh, (laughs) I don't know, I just, to me, it just, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of this one. I'd have to wait and see. 
I mean, I think one of the things that made the first one interesting was the fact that everybody involved wasn't that interested in the Joker (laughs) as a legacy character from the comic books. I think that sort of unshackled it from fanboy expectations. And so it could kind of just be its own thing. And I think a sequel of that, that as long as it's all the same creatives, uh, and it seems like it will be. I mean, that is an interesting take and it isn't, I don't know. I, I guess I, I I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely not excited for it, but it it could, it could still potentially win me over. I'm not like hard. No, Mm -hmm. but I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty on the fence. Okay. Uh, well tell me where you are with this. Julia Garner has officially been cast to portray Madonna in the pop star's upcoming biopic. Julia Garner, in case people aren't aware, plays a very prominent role in the series Ozark. Uh, she was also in several independent films um, before that. Yeah, what do you think? She looks a lot like her. Like a young 80s Madonna. Sure. I'm I'm not familiar with the actress. I've never seen Ozark. You know, I think Madonna as a pop cultural figure, you know, there's plenty of story there to tell. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, so I I think it could be cool. I just I hope they I hope they just get, you know, someone who's a little more inspired and they don't just do kind of the beat for beat biopic thing. Um cuz I I think I think there's potential for this to be pretty cool, but um, yeah, I think it just I think it's going to kind of depend on the script and the director. Yeah, if I had my way with it, like if I was given the assignment, make a Madonna biopic, but they didn't put a lot of restrictions other than that, Mm -hmm. I would kind of take the Todd Haynes approach to it, where it's Madonna in spirit. But the story itself is kind of this more wild, expressive interpretation of her life through uh, something a little less restrictive than just the headlines and, and the divorces and, you know, all of that stuff that we already already know. I would, I'm more interested in her as sort of a mythic presence in pop culture than the reality of who she is. I am certain it won't be that. I am certain it's going to be, I would imagine it's much harder to sell a movie like that than it is like, Oh, it's a biopic about Madonna. Right. Uh, I, I just hope it's at least like creative, you know, like I would prefer something more along the lines of rocket man to Bohemian Rhapsody. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've talked about biopics before. Probably the way to go about this is just pick like an event and center it around that rather than try to tell the full starting at the record label or whatever, getting discovered, and then go through every single story up until, you know, you have to start using bad age makeup and stuff. So yeah, that's what yeah. I don't want them to do. Um, I hope they just kind of like are able to whittle it down to one good story that kind of implies the rest. Um, but I am a fan of Julia Garner. Um, if she wasn't attached, I would really not care about this at all. 
Uh, but I think she's a really, really talented actress, uh, very uh, magnetic, and this could be her big break into more of a mainstream film kind of thing. Uh, I mean, I'm sure this will be a big mainstream film. I, I'm, yeah, yeah. I, I think this will probably be a lot of audiences' introduction to her. Mm-hmm. I mean, she is one of the more exciting things in Ozark. She plays, you know, this kind of conniving villain um, who outsmarts everybody. And I originally noticed her in a horror film about a cannibal family called We Are What We Are. I believe that's what it's called. Something to that effect. Um, and uh, we did it as, as streaming homework a long time ago before you were on the show. And I remember telling friend of the show, Richard, keep your eye out for this, uh, the girl who plays the middle child. She's especially good. You were right. Mm-hmm. You, you got it. I got it. Borat Breakout, Maria Baklava, set for a key role in Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, um, which is apparently already wrapped, but they're being Maria a little... Maria Bakalova, not, not Maria Baklava. I just Baklava said it fast. Baklava's a dessert. <laughs> I, I said it fast. Um, apparently they've already wrapped this, but it says, her role is being kept under wraps, in response to our story, this is being reported in Deadline Hollywood, Gunn just tweeted that Bakalova is, quote-unquote, incredible in the project. Is that a hint? Or is he just saying she's going to be good? I think, he, I don't know. I think she's. he's just saying she's going to be good. I I don't know. I hate that kind of speculation. Um I, uh, I'm very excited to see her in this. Um, I I think she's incredibly talented, uh, yeah. and I'm excited to see her, you know, break out from uh, from just doing Borat. And she was in the bubble, which was terrible. And so I'm excited to see her in something that's hopefully good and and that I'm excited about. Yeah. What would you like? She to was the best part in the bubble. One of, yeah. What would you say, what character would you want her to play? Oh, Lord, I have no idea. Uh, I mean... That could possibly be in one of these. When it comes to, like, Guardians of the Galaxy and Marvel Cosmic, that's kind of a blind spot for me. Okay. Um, I don't know a whole lot. Is there any major characters from the Guardians family tree that they've yet to do? Uh, it was kind of a big deal recently when they introduced that Spawn character, Angela. Um, that would probably throw some people. Um, that would be unexpected. And it wouldn't surprise me for for Marvel to, you know, just officially kind of put that to rest forever. Um, and, and make that character officially, you know, Marvel canon. That's kind of all I can think of off the top of my head. That could be kind of cool, but yeah, I I don't know. I'm I'm just I'm just here for it, whatever it is. Yeah, I don't know. I would uh, I would love to see uh, Squirrel Girl in something. I don't I don't know if that's Guardians enough, but um, why the fuck not? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that'd be an odd poll, but just I, it's not impossible. Um, yeah, she's yeah, a, she's a, a Great Lakes fun. Avenger, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's definitely <laughs> she was uh, for the listening audience that doesn't isn't familiar. The Great Lakes Avengers was this Avengers team that was like a joke book. Yeah. And so there were a lot of characters, and they were mostly stupid. And, uh, uh, you know, just had, like, really ridiculous powers. And one of them is Squirrel Girl, who she can talk to squirrels. But kind of the underlying joke is uh, that she's actually possibly one of the most powerful, uh, <laughs> like, superheroes on the planet. Like, uh, you know, in lore, she's officially, like, defeated Doctor Doom by herself and, and stuff like that. So it, it's an oddball enough of a character that I could see... You know, it working really well with James Gunn with his sensibility, but it doesn't totally match up with the Guardians just because they're so space based and right, pretty Earth based. But I mean, they could, you know, they they could change that for a movie. Yeah, I mean, it's not like any of the Guardians movies are particularly precious about the comic book interpretations. Yeah, and especially a character like Squirrel Girl, who definitely does have a pretty pretty stalwart fan base. Um, yeah, you know, so I think she's the only thing that really survived from the Great Lakes Avengers. I yeah, I think as so. a think as like a character that they still use. So I do think you know some people might get kind of fanboy irked uh, about changing her origin or whatever but i don't care uh i'd be here for it yeah so if anybody has any better ideas of what maria bakalova should play uh hit us up in the dms let's go ahead and start talking about top gun top gun maverick is the long-awaited sequel to 1986's top gun uh originally directed by tony scott um, who is no longer with us. He passed, I think, around like 20, 2009 or 10 or so. Um, yeah, now... I thought it was more recent, but... The last movie he did was uh, Unstoppable, the train movie. Yeah, wasn't that... I don't know. Time is a flat circle. It's fine. <laughs> uh, now this the new one is uh, directed by Joseph Kaczynski, who also did Tron Legacy and Oblivion with Tom Cruise, who returns to this film playing uh, Maverick, the main character. And in this one, we see him at the beginning of the story. He is you know, doing some sort of speed test on a new piece of equipment, a new plane. And, um, you know, he's as reckless as he's ever been. Um, but he's able to maneuver and fly faster than anybody in the the Air Force or the Navy or whatever. After he returns, he is set up on a new assignment to teach at the Top Gun Academy, um, where he is going to uh, take on the best of the best of the, the young cadets and train them for this difficult uh, mission involving flying low altitudes through a uh, curvy canyon to take out some uranium or 
some whatever, some bomb stuff they don't want happening in enemy territory. Uh, this mostly takes place in San Diego, actually, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, so did the, the first one, too. Yeah, where the Academy takes place. Um, and he is uh, reunited with Lieutenant Bradley Rooster, the son of Goose, who was played by Anthony Edwards in the 1986 film, and who, you know, dies in that film. Uh, spoiler alert if you've never seen Top Gun. And so he has a kind of a tug-and-pull relationship with with uh, Rooster because he Rooster wants to sort of establish himself being his own personality and not living in the shadow of his father. But uh, Tom Cruise's character, Maverick, is wants to make sure that he's safe and doesn't put him in any compromising positions to get him killed as well. And so that becomes a point of conflict in the story. But we meet a lot of other cadets, uh, including uh, Monica Barbaro as Phoenix, Lewis Pullman as Bob, Glenn Powell as this movie's Iceman, Hangman, um, who's kind of a uh, cocky know-it-all. And there's a lot of other characters as well. Danny Ramirez as Fanboy. And we also reteam a little bit with Val Kilmer, who comes back as Iceman, who's now ascended to being a general, as well as John Hamm and Charles Parnell, who are sort of the head instructors of this mission and trying to make sure that Maverick doesn't go off book too much. Um, well, they're, I mean, they're the commanding officers. <laughs> and they've hired him to, to come and do this. Uh, sort of uh begrudgingly val kilmer iceman is is like the admiral of the pacific fleet so he's kind of in charge of of everything and ever since top gun uh he's you know he's climbed the ranks of the military whereas maverick has kind of been uh a little more stagnant uh being more interested in flying than commanding um and so you know he's always had um, Admiral Iceman on his watching out for his back. Right, and they make a point of the fact that Maverick never had a family, never had any kids, has never really um, advanced very high in uh, his military rankings. Like, And this is, you know, part of his character arc here is self-realizing more uh, responsibility than he would um, intentionally give himself. And there's also a love story with Jennifer Conley as a as a bartender on this uh, military base. Y- yeah, um, which, fun fact, I've been to that bar. Uh, well, not that bar, literally, because they, I guess they, re- like, recreated it. Um, right. Because they like built a, a version on the beach that was just you know like a little bigger, so they could actually film in it. Um, but uh, yeah, there there's little uh, little rules in the bar, um, like you know you can't set your cell phone down on the bar, or you have to buy a round for everyone, um, and stuff and stuff like that. Um, and that's all real. That's all. So that that's fun. Um, our our navy friend took us on base to, to go to this bar once. And uh, so it was really fun to like see some of this stuff on screen. Did you play great balls of fire on the piano? No, I did not. 
because oh. uh, I don't know how to play piano, and nobody knows that song. <laughs> something, something. Yeah. Um, Goodness gracious, great balls of fire. <laughs> There's this is kind of a two pronged question into this review. I think. Um, okay. What did you think of the original Top Gun from from 1986? And what do you think of Top Gun Maverick? Because, and the reason I ask it that way is, Top Gun has had this very interesting legacy in film history where it's constantly sort of in flux between, is this so bad it's good? Or is it genuinely good? Or is there too much fuss being made about it either way? which is kind of my take on it. And, you know, it's also like the movie that broke out Tony Scott in a big way. He had done some movies before this, um, but certainly it was this movie that um, really sort of cemented his style and and uh, what he was about as a stylist and a director, which is something that, you know, I remember when Tony Scott was still alive, he was often talked about in the same breath as directors like Michael Bay, you know, as mm-hmm. kind of being hacky or all style and no substance, blah, blah, blah. And now yeah, that he's... I, I can see how you could get something like that if you've seen Top Gun. Like, you know, I, I don't think that Top Gun is is too far removed from a Michael Bay, uh, you know, especially earlier Michael Bay before it was just... CGI and explosions back when, you know, he used to direct a little bit. Right. Um, I can see the similarity there. Uh, to, to go back to your question, I think the first Top Gun is fine. It's, mm-hmm. I don't know, it is it is very 80s. Like, it, it, it has aged in kind of an interesting way that, yeah, I mean, sometimes it comes off a little campy. I do think, you know, like the, the action... I remember it holding up pretty well. Um, It's been a little bit since I've seen the original one. I think, generally speaking, Top Gun Maverick, for what it wants to be, which is a crowd-pleasing blockbuster, you know, kind of a reboot sequel thing. Mm -hmm. um, I'll just call it a sequel. I mean, it is a sequel. I think it's a much better movie. Uh, (laughs) Um... I feel I feel like Top Gun Maverick is exactly the movie you want it to be. It trades on just enough nostalgia that you're like, oh, they played the song and they uh, they, they did the thing, but it's still interesting enough. And and you know the relationships evolve, and and I think um, I think they build enough of a relationship between Maverick and Rooster that 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 works. And uh, and you know if the story doesn't totally work for you. I mean, it's got to win you over with the insane action sequences at the end. It's so well done as an action movie. Yeah, I think there's a couple things here that um, improve upon the original. I told you uh, last week after we were done recording that I was probably going to go back and watch Top Gun because I hadn't in a while. And I did, but I watched Top Gun Maverick first. Because I decided I don't want to be comparing it the whole time. 
I want to just sort of enjoy the movie for what it is first and then watch Top Gun and kind of have a clearer view of how I want to like think about these movies in tandem. And they are remarkably similar. I mean, you can see in that sort of sequely way where they're sort of tracing the plot points from sure, yeah. the original film to this film, you can and where the points of tension come, and and certain scenes and certain characters mirror things that happen in, in the I, original. I would say it's it's uh, similar to something like um, Star Wars: The Force Awakens, as far as that goes. Like, yeah, structurally, yeah, it's pretty similar plot, but this has the benefit of you know modern technology to make the stuff around the plot really sing. Yeah, I mean, I think the movie... I think it's paced better than the original, which is, uh, I think, something maybe people forget about, or maybe they don't. I I don't think the the original is paced very well. There's a lot of times during the original where I'm kind of checking out. Like, uh, I get kind of bored in between, like, you know, the flight sequences or whatever, like... So some of the character stuff is is good, and a lot of it is kind of whatever. But I think this movie actually deals with the pacing a lot better. And I think one of the, the biggest improvements is we're told from the beginning that his job is to go in here and teach that, prepare them for a mission. And so when we're doing these courses and these, you know, uh, uh, dogfighting exams and stuff... Um, there's more of a drive and a purpose and a goal to it than yeah. just... And a built-in tension. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's... The screenplay does a really good job at creating that tension all over the place. So we have, we have the, the tension of the fact that they have this mission coming up that they might not be prepared for yet, and they don't really have a lot of time to get there. And so that's all, you know, always kind of, um lying underneath the set pieces. But also there's the character stuff between Maverick and Rooster and, you know, Rooster wanting to be his own man and being frustrated that he's being benched a lot for a lot of these uh, uh, tests and stuff they're running. And uh, Maverick sort of taking this sort of fatherly role and feeling very protective and blah, blah, blah. I think all of that stuff works really well. Yeah. And I think it makes it... I would say this is probably a better movie, too, if we're just comparing one to the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even though it's not a very creative movie, because it is kind of just sort of doing the same movie again, but but with a little adjustments here or there. But I do think that it's told better. I also think that Joseph Kaczynski... I, I You know, I'm not a Tony Scott hater. I've liked most of the movies I've seen by him. I, I do think that he is very much a stylist. And I think that he he was one of those like early guys who came from music videos and, and went into film. And, you know, he wasn't his brother um, who had a bit more of an intellectual air to his best work, at least especially in the 80s and 70s. But I think in a way, Tony Scott carved out his own niche is like, okay, well, I'm not going to be the Blade Runner guy. I'm not going to be, you know, doing Aliens or even Thelma and Louise. 
I'm go my style is going to be more about this sort of celebration of aesthetic and you know genre that exists for its own sake you know mm. uh empty headed all vibes cinema <laughs> um and I think he's good at that and I think his best movies whether it be Top Gun or you know I I really like uh True Romance he has the benefit of working with a Tarantino script, but I think that is very much a Tony Scott film too. Than I thought, right? Yeah, and then Unstoppable, which was his last movie, was very good at what it was trying to do. Man on Fire. He's done a lot of pretty good movies. He's done a lot of silly movies too, but he did a lot of good movies. I think Joseph Kaczynski knows what he did well and tries to sort of create a similar aesthetic, but. I think he infuses a little bit more humanity and depth in there. It's not quite as empty-headed. Even as even though he's kind of like, if we're going back to the Star Wars thing, he's sort of a J.J. Abrams-esque in, the, in his career so far because he you know, started out doing Tron Legacy. And his whole career so far has been sort of copying the style of other directors. But... I think in this in this one it works pretty well. Where I don't think the movie works quite as well, and you're welcome to disagree. I think it takes a little too long to meet Rooster and the New Cadets, and I think we could have cut out the romance with Jennifer Connelly altogether and create more bonding and relationships with that crew. I would have probably played it to where that's more the A plot and bring in uh, Maverick at the point that he starts teaching rather than build him up for 15, 20 minutes before that point. I, I'm going to disagree with you on on that aspect. Uh, I, I don't know. I think... I don't know. I, I think the, like, the sort of the initial scene where we get with maverick as a test pilot and stuff Mm -hmm. uh i think it's i mean it's a pretty cool scene uh you know so there's some of that aesthetic just for aesthetic's sake and i think you know it it catches us up with the character in a way that again is going to please fans of the original and lets you know right away who this guy is which yeah it's not that complex like he's going to to push everything you know beyond the limit kind of guy uh i think this scene shows us that in a way that maybe he can't teach that maybe he can't teach you know why for some reason he's still alive when any other pilot would have probably blown up by now you know what i mean so i i think uh I, i think it's actually a pretty good scene and with him as the vocal point I don't know. I, I think you kind of need that. I do, on one hand, I do agree with you uh, that the Jennifer Connelly story doesn't really add anything except just some more kind of Navy window dressing. But I also kind of like that because, it, you know, again, it just kind of makes it feel a little more authentic. It makes it feel very San Diego. You probably could have done with a little less of it, uh, but... I don't know. I also think it's kind of fun that this movie has like introduced all the uh, like a whole new generation to Jennifer Connelly being hot. 
Sure, and she looks great, and she's she you know she's not bad in the movie. I I just don't think her stuff is very well integrated into the plot. It feels I agree, and it, it, there is kind of a um, there's kind of a ham fisted. Oh, she might be my last chance for like a normal life, whatever that is. Right, uh, you know, or, or, you know, a life beyond jets, because um, he's getting older. Uh, uh, so. You know, I think there's a little bit of that, but uh, it, it that is kind of one of the few things that I, I did think felt a little forced. But I don't know. It didn't bother me. It wasn't like, a, oh, this movie would be so much tighter without all of this romance nonsense. I, I, I don't know. I kind of liked that because it did give it this. It, it did give it this kind of older movie feel. Yeah, I mean. Structurally speaking. Obviously, they're trying to sort of recreate the romance from the first film. And that movie, that romance was sort of introduced in a different way, in a way that was more kind of plot-oriented. Whereas, Mm -hmm. you know, because he ends up hitting on who is going to be his instructor. And so there's that tension of that story. Um, Is, you know, she's walking this fine line between, like, conflict of interest and blah, blah, blah. Jennifer Connelly doesn't have that here. She's just kind of there. And yeah. it, it's whenever they cut to it, it's a pretty hard cut from from the rest of the story. And I wouldn't even necessarily have a problem with that. Lots of movies have B-plot love stories. It's only in that I think I was kind of getting towards the third act when I was like, okay, when I was kind of putting it together in my head, like, what this relationship between Maverick and Rooster is supposed to be one of the driving engines of the story. Rooster, particularly Miles Teller's character, is not in it that much. Yeah, I, I he, do agree with you there. He kind of just shows think- up in the background of a montage every now and then. And then they try and use this big third act to sort of bond these two stories together in a way like in a way that the movie should have been doing all along. And I think it mostly works. Although I I do think the final conflict of this movie is like pretty redonkulous, but uh, what what do you, what do you mean? Redonkulous. When it it essentially becomes a mission impossible movie for about 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It was really cool. (laughs) I mean, I had fun with it, but it's uh, it's like one insane coincidence after another for any of that to work out like it does. I mean, it's it's of beyond course, stupid. Of course, it is. But you know, this again, this this ha- movie has kind of a lightness to it that that again, I no, I, I get it. I'm kind you know, of I under- I understand that a lot of this movie is probably not very accurate as far as like the maneuvers and stuff you can do with these types of jets and the speeds that they're uh, going. According to, to my pilot friend, some of this stuff is literally impossible. I mean, <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, and that I accept later when they're like become super spies, I'm like, okay, this, now this is a bit of a hat on a hat. They and, didn't become super spies. They just like sneak, they like sneak past like a couple people to me. It, it's a little silly, yes, but it was it never crossed that line into like unbelievability and I think the action scenes uh 
more than make up for it because this whole movie is kind of gearing up to this final mission right that you know i i wanted some payoff to this i wanted to feel this impossible mission all right so well like you, you know, know you had fun that's cool i just thought uh, by that point i was like okay I, I get they're trying to up the ante more and more. Don't, don't dismiss my fun. Like, you're being a curmudgeon. <laughs> like, like, you're selling this movie on the fun. Yeah. And and it delivers. And so I think it's it's successful. Like, I, I thought the action sequences were incredible. And you can't really discount that because that's kind of the juice here. Like, that... And the fact that they were able to connect it with a story that... And characters that I even gave half a shit about is an accomplishment because I, you know, yeah. Uh, the point, isn't... the point being, um, you know, I felt like they they got to that point in the story mostly because there wasn't a lot of on screen time um, before the third act with Rooster, and who's supposed to be like second billing in the movie. Those are yeah, the things do, about I it that I don't with think you that, work as well. Right. That I think we could have peppered in some more, uh, you know, like one-on-one scenes between Mav and Rooster because yeah, that like there's scenes where yeah, it's it's literally like they're having a conversation, but you can't hear it because of the jets, and and it's kind of funny. Yeah, and and that's kind of you know that kind of is their relationship is there is this tension between them and they never sort of get this quiet moment to catch up. So, yeah, I do agree with you that could we have traded, you know, a couple of Jennifer Connelly scenes for another Miles Teller scene? Yeah, mm-hmm. that would have been that would have been fine. Uh, or even given him the the love story rather than Maverick, I think would make more sense. Just to get him away from the context of being Maverick's student and just to get to know him and his life other than the fact that he apparently wants to dress exactly like and keep the same facial hair as his father uh i mean you know it sounds ridiculous but right now i definitely have my dad's beard so i can't say anything (laughs) fair enough i uh, on the other hand i think glenn powell i've been a fan for a while the whole supporting cast is great i love this crew of elite pilots you know the like the best of the best and yeah glenn powell's kind of steals the show as hangman fun and charismatic i was a big fan of him he first uh, popped up on my radar uh, when he was in uh richard linklater's everybody wants some and uh i hope that this is the movie that sort of propels him to the next thing i think great you're great at predicting young talent we get it i'm just uh, saying <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh, no, yeah, he's he's fantastic. Steals every scene he's um, in. And in fact, I think he's much more likable than Val Kilmer was as Iceman. I do, t- I do too. And I, I think I think the movie intentionally makes him a little... I don't know. I, he's less yes, antagonistic. He's, he's cocky, but he's less antagon- antagonistic. Lewis Pullman, who was great in Bad Times at the El Royale, um, yeah, is, with, is um, fun as uh, this kind of like nerdy character. 
kind of fun that um, both him and John Hamm were were in this and mm-hmm. Bad Times at the El Royale. I don't know if they had any screen time together in this, but I don't think they do. Um, in fact, you, I just put it together in my head because you said it that they were even in that both in that movie. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's just kind of a fun coincidence. Uh, it was very exciting to see John Hamm doing something that's not comedy adjacent, right? Um, or 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 a commercial for television or something like that. Um, he needs this movie. Yeah. I mean, you know, his character and Charles Parnell are basically just there for exposition purposes, but they bring the gravitas to those characters and, you know, they infuse life into them so they don't just you feel totally. like exposition NPCs. Yeah, I agree completely. I think um, the, the movie definitely needed actors of that of that caliber to, to sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think it, again, it was just really great to see, uh, John Hamm kind of doing something like, you know, a little serious again. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the whole cast is great. I, I mean, again, I think this movie is exactly what it was intending to be, which is a crowd pleasing summer tentpole movie that you know we haven't had in a while um right well specifically a a crowd-pleasing tentpole movie that isn't comic-con adjacent yeah you know and and this i i did my written review of this and you know one of the things about it that kind of makes it a surprise hit is that in the world we live in now where everything every major ip is you know sort of geek oriented you know, movies for nerds. Um, the original Top Gun was was a movie for jocks. Yeah. And this movie is kind of celebrating that in to a certain extent. I think it's less jingoistic and unintentionally or maybe intentionally propagandistic than the than the original one. Um, it's a little bit more self-aware about all of that stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, they are still like, it's still there, but yes, it's not as blunt as the first one. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, it's still there in the way that any American action movie is going to have that. Well, spe- you know? especially involving the military. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of times these movies are often he- uh, funded by the military in part. I believe this one probably is, too, because they see it as a great recruiting tool. For sure. I mean. And, you know, somebody has to fly those planes, so it's, gonna, it's not going to be me. Well, I don't know. I don't know anymore. <laughs> we don't really need Maverick's kind anymore. We can do all of this with drones, Cassidy. <laughs> That's another part of the movie. Right. Um, but what I, what I think is... Uh, I think there's something old-fashioned about this movie and something kind of like, you know, an action movie that can exist in sort of a believable-ish world, a world that's recognizable, that isn't science fiction-based, but can still have all those, like, big popcorn moments that, you know, yeah, your Marvel can, movies can and stuff can the do. Thrills. I, I agree. And I also think it's, it is... An IP that, I mean, yes, Top Gun definitely has its fans, but it's not something that people are too precious about, or I guess at least like nerd culture isn't. So, you know, you're not going to have, you know, you're not going to have the 2016 Ghostbusters incident. You're not going to have, 
people tearing it apart on the forums. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, it, if they had, you know, recast Maverick to be Aquafina or something, then maybe that would have happened. But yeah, totally. But that's what I mean when it's it's true enough to the original. Yeah. I do still think this movie is interested in being its own movie. It is its own thing. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if you if you do end up watching it like I did, where you watch the original after, I mean, I'd seen the original some amount of times a long time ago when I was a kid and whatever. But if you just happen, if you've never, you know, seen a Top Gun before, um, you can definitely walk into the theater without having seen the original and get everything you need out of this one. I, I also think it's interesting that one of the reasons it's done so well done so well for a few weeks in a row now um, with very little drop off as far as from week to week comparatively speaking with other blockbusters is because it's more of a mixed audience than they normally get for big tent poles I, I I've heard that like a good half or more of the audience is over 35 it's bringing in a lot of older audiences into the theater. There is an audience out there who wants cool movies that are fun, that are not just sci-fi wizards stuff. and spacemen and yeah, I love a, a good wizard and a spaceman and and squirrel girls and the rest of it. But there is also this it, other audience out there that's for the theater completely ignored. Well, I and I think I think that's why, like you know the. I think that's why the Mission Impossible franchise, uh, uh, you know, it, it it's skewing a little nerdier as it goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think that's why James Bond has the legacy it does. Is you know, these are action movies that are a little more grounded. I mean, you know, not really. I mean, James Bond is basically a fucking superhero. Um, <laughs> but it's depending it's, on the movie, yeah. I mean, the last few have not necessarily been presented as such, you know, so I I agree with you. It, it was like it was refreshing to go see like a kick ass movie that I didn't have to think about the last 30 movies for. Right. Yeah. So I, I just think it's an interesting example. And, you know, Hollywood only thinks in terms of what's what puts butts in seats and what doesn't. So if they see a model they can go for that's that's parallel to or you know, at least has some crossover with the comic book franchise world, then maybe they'll start having other ideas. No, this is just going to mean they're going to green light Top Gun 3. Like, that's that's yeah. all it that's all it means. But um, Right, or but Days yeah, of Thunder uh, 2 or whatever. Top Gun Maverick, I was a fan. For what it is, I'm giving it an A-. I'm giving it a B+. All right, all right. I mean, pretty similar, uh, you know, we're in similar territory. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I think this was a, a surprising summer crowd pleaser. I thought for sure after seeing the trailer a hundred times, I was like, okay, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then honestly, um, there was a, like, when I saw Doctor Strange... In the mountain or in the mountains of madness or whatever, <laughs> uh, I saw an IMAX, and they had a clip uh, from Top Gun before 
that I guess was like an IMAX exclusive thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. And it sold me on it. I was like, oh, this makes this is way more interesting than the trailers have made the movie look like. Uh, uh, it, so the, the clip really was what sold me on the movie. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know. Just kind of an interesting thing there. I also saw this in Dolby Digital with like the big screen and the fucking butt shaking noise. So like you really felt the jets as they were flying by. It was cool. It was a cool movie. Um, I saw it at a drive-in and had a lot of fun seeing it that way. So, nice. um, you yeah. know, great drive-in movie. Absolutely. Let's go ahead and talk about Copland. It's, this was your assignment for the streaming homework. It's on HBO Max. Uh, what happens in this movie? Yeah, so this movie is about this like area of New Jersey, which has a disproportionate population of cops um, because of like some zoning loopholes. Uh, that they figured out. So it's, it's kind of just a town for cops, run by cops. And Sylvester Stallone is, is the sheriff, you know, and he's got a pretty sleepy gig, just kind of breaking up domestic disputes and going to the bar and and getting drunk and and playing pinball. Of, you know, yeah, I'm playing pinball and just traffic stops and. Uh, uh, for the new, you know, the greater New York area, a, a pretty quiet, easy gig. Uh, and he, he got this job as sheriff because he couldn't be an NYPD officer. He failed the physical test because he's deaf in one ear from an accident, uh, where he saved a woman from drowning, uh, when he was much younger. So yeah, there's this huge cast a uh, character actor cast of you know cops uh uh it, sort of different levels of policing and the police force uh one of them is uh they refer to him as superboy um played by michael rapaport who is sort of a hero cop known for he saved a, a bunch of kids and He's at this bachelor party and he's heading home and there is an incident where he he murders uh, the, these young black men. He thinks they pointed a gun at him. Turns out, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, a very unfortunate incident. Uh, and then all of the kind of, of machinations of Copland led by uh, Harvey Keitel playing Ray to sort of try to figure a, a way to to get him out of this, uh, you know, whether it comes to planning evidence or <laughs> uh, <laughs> faking a death. Um, yeah, there's no uh, real way to kind of bury that lead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they So <laughs> they fake his suicide to try and get him out of town uh, to figure out a way for all of this to go away. Uh, yeah, and, you know, meanwhile, Sylvester Stallone is turning a blind eye to a lot of shady shit. Um, so much so that he doesn't even realize he's doing it. He, you know, he, he's looking the other way at, like, bribes and 
mafia connections. Illegal contraband being passed and, uh, you know, cops doing cocaine and, um, you know, it all kind of escalates to the point where this police district is run like the mob. You know, it, it's to the point where when they're not on duty, they're organized crime. Um, and meanwhile, all of this is trying to be uncovered by internal affairs uh, officer played by Robert De Niro. Yeah, I mean, there's there's kind of a lot going on here. It's uh, I remember when this movie came out, there was a lot of talk about Sylvester Stallone sort of having like a comeback. Because at this point in his career, you know, through the 90s, 80s and 90s, he was, you know, well, in the 80s, he was like Rambo and stuff. In the 90s, he was doing a lot more like comedies, um, like Stop for My Mom Will Shoot or Oscar, you know, these kind of things. Yeah, and some like action comedies. like Yeah, Demolition like Demolition Man, Man and Dread and, and some schlocky stuff. Yeah. And it was this movie, I want to say this was James Mangold's first feature film. Uh, no, he did a movie in 95 called Heavy. Uh, this was his follow-up to that. In 97. Oh, damn. Okay. So one of his first, and he also wrote the screenplay. And there was a lot of talk about, oh, this is Sylvester Stallone's comeback. Is there, is he, you know, Oscar buzz? Is he going to get a best a best actor nod? Etc. Um, even though this movie is stacked with huge actors, like a who's who of oh my like gosh. tough guys. They, yeah, this is another one of those movies where it's like, it's everybody you've ever seen in a crime movie ever. Right. Harvey Keitel, um, Ray Liotta, who just recently passed away. Um, yeah, rest in peace. Uh, Peter Berg. Uh, Robert Janine, De Niro. Robert De Niro. Uh, Robert Patrick, the T-1000. Um, yeah, he always plays a good... Uh, plays a good creep. Good cop. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Janine Garofalo is, is is in here as a as a as a uh, deputy, um, a small town deputy along with Sylvester Stallone. And what's interesting about this movie, I think I've never seen this, but um, I you know wanted to for a while. Is you know usually a, a complaint I have about certain movies is when the protagonist is passive. And when they don't, oh yeah, yeah. But in this, it's necessary. Like this, well, that's the story. That's the story. Yeah, is the fact that he is this get along to go along kind of like you know I've the best years of my life are behind me. Sort of, you know, he feels like life kind of got away from him, and he's doing the best that he can do, just sort of getting cats out of trees or whatever. He wants to be you know quote unquote a real cop, and he, he's surrounded by these. These tough guys, and they're all taking advantage of him. It's not that he's turned a blind eye. It's that he was put in that position because they know yeah. he's not going to – he's not yeah, going to call them on anything. It, well, it's it's not a matter of him being corrupt. Yeah, I didn't mean turn a blind eye that way. It, it's yeah. more of just uh, uh, he's he's a sad sack. He yeah. It, it's you know so this stuff is in front of him and he's aware of it. Like he you know he knows his friend is doing cocaine, but is he going to say anything about it? No, because it's his friend. You know, it's like it's more it's more trouble than it's worth. It's more uh you know it's more everything and and that's. That is who this character is. He yeah. is the epitome of passive. And everybody, you know, all of these, these 
uh, New York cops who come and hang out at this bar with him. And they all, you know, pat him on the back and tell him how, how good of a guy he is. And he's just happy to feel included. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and they all use that against him throughout the entire story. And it's such an interesting role for Sylvester Stallone because he's he was up to this point was always like the badass and the Mr. man of Tough action. Guy. Yeah. Yeah. And the hero. And here he is. Com- he's, he's asked to completely shed everything that we know about. Actually, in a way, kind of similar to how he was on like the first Rocky, you know. Not the sharpest tool in the shed, and his biggest battle is against, is against himself. And so it's it's interesting to see everybody around him who who is a person of character, whether it's Janine Garofalo, who obviously doesn't have the power to make him do anything, um, or or Ray Liotta's character, who's just on a cocaine binge, but is like trying to get him to see the light. Um, or Robert De Niro's character, who pretty much has to manipulate him into action. Everybody yeah. around him is, is is kind of the audience being like, "Be Rambo already!" Like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and and we we get to spend the whole movie watching him get to that place where he becomes the man of action. It's very satisfying. It's a really good uh, portrayal of sort of a noirish character. Yeah, and and it's it's a really good slow burn too because yeah. you don't know if it's ever gonna actually pay off. And yeah, it's I think this movie is also interesting because uh, James Mangold, like you know, his later stuff wears its genre I think a little more on its sleeve sure. uh, than this does. Yeah. Um. So I I think that's. I don't know, kind of interesting, too. I mean, it makes a lot of sense now knowing it's a second movie. Um, it was certainly much but, more smaller scale. It's much more of a screenplay forward movie. Totally, yeah. Um, in some ways, I think it's probably better directed that, or better uh, written than directed. Not that it's bad. I mean, it's still, but, it's still um, I don't know, it's still, there's a lot of visually interesting stuff going on. I, I mean... Yeah, you can I, see the potential. I don't think his eye is totally sharpened yet, but um, but it's still like a good looking movie. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, I think it's the scene work between the actors is really good, and you can tell that's where he's really flexing the most because he isn't quite as adept at the action cinema stuff yet. I also think one of the things that's really interesting about the movie, and I was wondering like how it would come off given the climate of these modern days um, is how prescient a lot of this stuff is. Yeah. Yeah. This is kind of, uh, you know, a cab, the movie. Right. Yeah. At a time when it was not as popular to tell those type of stories. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because on one hand it's like they're tackling all these issues, whether it be like, you know, these cover ups and the thin blue line and, police corruption and qualified immunity and all of this stuff that is super relevant today. Um, yeah. But on the other hand, it also kind of feels like science fiction because they're not brazenly, brazenly doing it openly and admitting to it and getting away with it anyway. Well, so like I- there's, there's enough of a infrastructure of checks and balances to that these cops would even bother covering something up? Well, I mean, I think 
I think the big difference is, you know, in a post-Trump world, the the social contract no longer exists, right? Every everybody can say every mean, nasty, fucking horrible thing they've ever done and they're just going to get more popular for it. There was right. a time when you couldn't do that, you know, when when it might sound trite, but when there, you know, when there was enough decency that if something was exp- the underbelly had to at least be the underbelly. You know what I mean? They couldn't be flagrant with it. Uh, I think the big yeah, difference between then and now, you know, Trump can, is certainly a part of it or a symptom of it. But I think it's even more so is that the court of public opinion is where all of these battles are fought now. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Like law is kind of incidental when it comes to, especially when it comes to police. Uh, law is sort of incidental, and and if you can propagandize enough people into one narrative and create enough of an imbalance publicly, then it becomes more of a political problem than a law problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's and that, sort of the difference between now and 1997. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, for sure. Yeah, see, this movie definitely... I mean, it's kind of ahead of its time. It's 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 almost feels more relevant today. Um, yeah. Well, at the same and, and time, also, also like, very much in the tradition of sort of seventies neo noirs that were looking back at forties neo noirs or forties noirs. Well, also, I think what's kind of interesting about this movie as well is, and I don't know if this was necessarily intentional or not. I I think it was. Is the the just the complete glossing over of the racism? Because this movie's not really about racism, but the inciting incident is a racial profiling. The the yeah. you know there there's a bunch of racial comments thrown around that aren't as like obvious as how racism is typically depicted in movies. So I think that's an interesting element too, because it's not even necessarily what's going on here it just exists in this world right it's 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 sort of always underlying it there's a subtext to all of this that you know because they you know they talk a little bit in dialogue at the big at the time of the inciting incident that's like oh this we don't want these you know this kind because this is what five years after rodney king so there's that's a little bit more fresh in people's memory um, at that time, well, there's also like a comment about how, you know, Michael Rapoport is known as this super cop because right. he saved all these kids. But, you know, th- then there's also comments like, yeah, but they were black kids. So that's not going to that's only going to take you so far. And, and you know, like there's gross comments like that in the movie that I, I think is interesting that, you know, is kind of calling it. Again, I think it's a case of viewing these cop characters with 2020 eyes, um, but it is addressing it without it being the the point of the movie. I, I just thought that was kind of an interesting uh, subtext here. You know, all these cops are white. Yeah, and it's, it's very much uh, a white community. It, yeah, it's there without it uh, being super obvious about it. Yeah. And, it, you know, uh, if the movie had been also... made today, it probably wouldn't have been as subtle about that. But No, yeah. 
I I also wonder is this Robert De Niro's last good performance? No, <laughs> this was during it. I mean, he's been in some good stuff pretty recently, but but this was during that like little wave he hit, you know, in the late '90s, like somewhere between Heat and Ronan. He had a string of interesting work, kind of at the t- you know Jackie Brown and a few you know a few things here at the end of the '90s. That was where he reminded everybody that he's Robert De Niro. Um, yeah, and no, then he, it was it was very refreshing to see to a see him being he you know he was kind of playing against type as the internal affairs officer. Yeah. Well, a lot of um, these guys are if they're not playing this, they're playing gangsters. <laughs> Which for is, sure, yeah. you know, I think that's intentional as well. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I yeah. Overall, I just I thought this was a really interesting movie. Um, uh, it, it's also, I, I mean, it's a bit of a slow burn, but it's also, I thought, a really entertaining movie. Like, I was, I was, uh, you know, pretty, pretty wrapped up in it. Yeah, it's very well told. Um, it's very well paced. And I think that it, it has enough moving parts that even if it's not full of shootouts and, and chase scenes and things like that, you know, there's enough intrigue going on to keep you involved. Yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, interesting dynamic scenes between characters, and and, and just the 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 way the status of characters kind of gets shifted throughout scenes, I thought was really interesting. Right, and the expectations of characters, like especially something like Ray Liotta, which this is why I thought you were brought up this movie was because it was a recent passing. This is a pretty big role for him. Uh, no, I didn't, I didn't really know much about it. It's just, it's one of those movies that I've heard a lot about, uh, uh, kind of like you said, it's mm-hmm. sort of been on my list forever. I, and I knew it was James Mangold. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's always been one I've been kind of interested in. I keep forgetting, even now as we're talking about it, that it was 1997. I, I keep thinking this was like the early 2000s that this movie came out. No, it was a while back. Um. But it uh, it left last a lasting impression, I'd say. Um, sure. And and just kind of to to go back to what you were saying, just to circle back to Stallone, uh, he's so fucking good in this movie. Uh, I mean, yeah. we, we talked a lot about how you know we talked a lot about his character and he was playing against type um, and all that. I just I I vaguely remember like the trailers for this, and you know, I just thought it was kind of a Stallone as a cop movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really feel like it's one of those movies that was just like made for Stallone. You know, like it was made to show off what he can actually do as an actor. Because it's very easy to write him off. Yeah, it's easy, and it's also easy just to use him as just turn him into a big muscly goon or yeah. have him, you know, do a silly take on his goon character like something like stop or my mom will shoot so i yeah i think this is it's exactly the type of thing he he needed at the time and should be pursuing um and i've never seen like the the later rocky film he was in some people say that was good i don't know if i've ever seen any of the rockies what i don't think that can't be true 
I, I've seen, like, you know, scenes and snippets, and I know all the quotes, but I don't think I've seen any Rockies. Okay, well, I'll keep that in mind for future uh, homeworks. Um, all right, that is that. Uh, f- next week, uh, for the streaming homework, I'm going to have us watch the documentary How to Survive a Plague, um, which came out in 2012, but tells the story of uh, the AIDS epidemic through the activist group ACT UP. And uh, it'll be interesting to watch that in COVID era because there's some interesting parallels. Um, Sure, yeah. But yeah, we'll be watching that. And if anybody has anything to say about any of the movies we talked about in this episode or previous, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. Uh, go ahead and follow us and drop us a line over on our Instagram or Twitter at MacGuffinPod. If you want to throw something in the DMs, you're welcome to do that as well. Uh, be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review on whatever podcatcher you use, whether it's iTunes or Spotify, Stitcher Radio, Google Podcasts, whichever one is your app of choice. Be sure to read the reviews I do for the Idaho State Journal by looking up Idaho State Journal uh, Arts and Entertainment, and that'll take you to the page where they put my reviews. And you can follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at VC Cassidy. And you can follow me on Twitter for now and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. Uh, you can also follow my art account on Instagram at Sticky Note Aesthetic. And that is the episode. That's why we call him Hangman. He'll always leave you hanging out to dry. Bye.